This week on the Bucket Seat Podcast, I speak with Benjamin Hunting. In the conversation, we discuss everything from the extremely long and intriguing list of vehicles he's owned and worked on, to some truly inspiring moments discussing his career as a writer and the value of craft. And this is an episode that I won't long forget, as Benjamin's care for his work and genuine nature all came together to produce what I think may be one of the most inspiring episodes I've ever recorded. And I truly hope you find as much comfort in Benjamin's convictions as I did. And for those of you ever questioning the importance or value of what you do, I think you'll enjoy this episode that much more. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne, and this is the Bucket Seat Podcast. Awesome. Um, Okay, cool. So um, welcome back to the Bucket Seat Podcast, everyone. Today on the show, I have Benjamin Hunting as my guest. And Benjamin, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Benjamin is a freelance writer, an automotive journalist, and a very impressive one at that. From the pages of Super Street to some of the most detailed pieces of work you'll read in Haggerty Car Class, or sorry, Haggerty Classic Car, accomplished, I would say, is an understatement. So in conjunction with all of his writing, he's also the co-host of his own weekly podcast with Sammy Hajasad called the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. And if you haven't listened to it, you should. So Ben, why don't you give everybody listening the general premise of your podcast and that show? Sure. Well, Sammy and I have been friends for a long time, and the podcast kind of serves a dual role for us. It's it's essentially a brain dump. Once a week, we get together and we get to vent, talk, or analyze things that have gone on in the industry, things that uh, that have been on our minds about cars or vehicles that we've driven. And it's also a great way for us to stay in touch because while we're very close friends, we live in two different cities. I'm in Montreal, and he's in Toronto. And it's not always easy to find the time to stay in touch with people that you care about. So carving out an hour or two hours a week to do exactly that is something that uh, has been really important to me over the last almost three years that we've been doing the podcast and uh, 150 episodes now. That's amazing. It's a huge accomplishment to get to that level too. And so um, in terms of the subject matter, I mean, give us maybe uh, the topic of your last episode just for context. Well, the last episode was a fairly simple one. We each had driven a specific car uh, and we came together and kind of discussed what we thought about it. And we had some overlap because we had sampled the car, um, the car that Sammy had driven, I'd driven in the past and vice versa. So mm-hmm. it's kind of nice because it, it, it gets you to re- sometimes the first week or so after you've driven a vehicle, you think about it in a certain way. And then six months go by, you're exposed to either competitive vehicles in the same space or, you know, things change in the industry and you start to change your opinions, but you can't go back in time and change what you recorded. <laughs> so when, when when Sammy comes out with a car that I drove a while ago, I get to talk about it in a different way and he gets to give me his fresh impression. So it's always kind of like a give, a give and take in terms of the experience you've had with that model. Oh, it's so cool. And I and and you know, to I, I think there's this interesting duality to it that is equally as interesting for someone who is in the automotive industry and can understand or relate to some of the content or even the the I guess the the type of discussion that you're having about the cars, but also to someone that was out there looking and shopping for a car. I think it's equally as valuable for them to come in and hear your opinion on it, having driven so many different vehicles throughout the industry and for years and years um, that it's a it's a valuable opinion piece that um, that I do encourage anyone listening if they haven't um, and you're looking for a car it's a great place to start especially in Canada 
Well, I appreciate you saying that. We do try to be relevant and interesting. I also try to make people laugh, though, because, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's not exactly a super serious job. I mean, it's serious in the sense that this is a very large purchase, and a car is something that you don't just buy and dispose of. It's something that hopefully you're going to use for a long time. So we keep that in mind when we're talking about the vehicles. But at the same time, there's so much marketing hype that surrounds the industry as a whole and specific models in particular, that cutting through that is often a challenge in itself and it can be a lot of fun to do. Right, yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir. Um, I, I certainly understand the amount of hype and industry um, support, I would say politely, that, that a lot of these vehicles get and the, the hype machine around all of it is intense. So to see through that and to, you know, I mean, there's a, there is a very comedic, um, element to your show that makes it uh, very enjoyable, even if you're not into specifically the cars you're talking about. So kudos to you guys. Um, okay, so now moving into where I always begin the show with all of my guests, no matter kind of who it is, I like to start at the beginning. And so it always starts with the same format, the same question set with a couple of modifications for you based on your profession. But what was it that got you into cars? So how were you inspired or what hooked you? Well, my father's been into cars his entire life, and that played a huge role in indoctrinating me into that world. Uh, I grew up riding around in classic cars. He always had at least one car from the 50s, 60s, 40s, the entire throughout my entire childhood. He collects Studebakers. He's got 10 at any given time. What? Um, wow. And Yeah. And uh, we went to a lot of car shows throughout the northeastern United States and parts of Canada. And also went to a lot of racing. Uh, NASCAR, when NASCAR came to New Hampshire, I believe 89 or 90, when New Hampshire Motor Speedway opened, we've had tickets there, I guess, for 30 years now. Um, haven't missed a race. We went to NHRA events, um, all sorts of stuff like that. And I was just constantly, my, my parents always uh, included me, myself and my sister in whatever was going on. We weren't, we weren't left at home on vacations. Um, we were always participating. And a lot of that was automotive related. Oh, that's so cool. And I guess to give context for some of the listeners too, when you said New Hampshire, um, so maybe just let everyone know, I mean, you're, you're, you were born and raised in Montreal or kind of in no, and around I that was, area? I was born and raised in the Eastern townships of Quebec, which is about, uh, 130, 140 kilometers east of the city of Montreal. And I grew up 30 kilometers from the Vermont border. So we spent a lot of time in the Northeast because the car culture in America is just so much greater than anywhere in rural Quebec. I mean, Montreal <laughs> has a pretty good car. Montreal has a pretty good car culture, but you, you really have to go to the States if you're looking for um, any kind of volume when it comes to older cars or performance cars. So that's where we spend a lot of time. That's awesome. I completely agree with your, your previous statements. Um, okay, so then what was the first car that you ever owned? And that could differ from the first car you purchased yourself. So uh, this it's kind of two answers. The first car I ever owned was a, I believe it was a 87 Ford Ranger that I, I was 15 years old. I didn't have a driver's license and I was working the, the summer. It might've been 16, but I still didn't have my license. Um, and I was working for the summer at a farm in the area where I grew up and the truck was, it belonged to the owner of the farm and I was kind of working on the farm to pay it off. It was a sweet rig. It had like roll bar and uh, lights on the, on, on top of the roll bar and a, a push bar on the front. It was blue. Nice. Five speed. 
And uh, I got fired from the farm. Um, and I remember it, it affected me a lot when I, when it happened. Uh, now I find it hilarious. But <laughs> I remember the owner coming up to me and he said, uh, Benjamin, you're just not a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, they took the truck back. So they paid me cash. Um, and I ended up with a – that fall when I got my license, I ended up with a 1980 Chevy Malibu with a V6 3.8 with four door car with a headliner that was like billowing down from the from the roof and it was that light institutional blue that gm put on like every car in the 80s Mm -hmm. yeah and that car was terrible i mean i mean your first car is always the best fastest car you've ever had right so i was doing ridiculous stuff with it uh and all my friends were you know we were cruising around all the time and by all the time i mean for the first three months of ownership because it had a frame crack in the left rear and i went around a corner with a police car behind me and the corner had a hill and the frame actually dipped down and touched the road and all these sparks came out and uh, the cops pulled me over and the cop asked me to put the parking brake on and advance the vehicle and then he was like whoa 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 because i didn't have a parking brake i just basically shot forward and uh, they took the car off the road so it was like three months of glory that's, uh, and, <laughs> that's hilarious yeah, so that was my first car and i think i've since then i mean not to brag because most of them are crappy but i had 35 to 40 in the ensuing ensuing years i have a bit of a problem oh my god have you have you publicly documented that anywhere if someone wanted to know what they all were not publicly no but they are documented like i do have records of most of them it's funny because my my godfather uh who's a very close friend of, of my father's he's also into cars and he showed me a book when I was a teenager of the documentation he had for his cars and he had close to 200 in his lifetime. Oh my God. That's I crazy. Thought, I thought, yeah. And he's, you know, he's a man of, you know, average modest means. He's not a rich man by, by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a tinkerer. So he was always buying cars, messing around with them and then selling them and getting, getting something else. So that blew my mind when I was a teenager. I'm like, how does that happen? And now I'm like almost 40 and I, I realize very easily how it happened. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it must have blown your mind. You're like, this guy's got to be a billionaire. Um, well, you'd mentioned you'd mentioned tinkering. And so that's one of my next questions. Um, what was the, you know, what was the, the first car that you tinkered on? And, and you know what I say to some of my guests too, like, or do you even tinker? There are some guests that just, you know, have abstained um, and let well, uh, professionals uh, or semi-professionals work on their cars. But did it, did it ever uh, occur to you that you wanted to get in there and start doing things yourself? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when I was a teenager, I had zero money. So doing stuff myself was the only way I was going to be able to keep a car on the road or modify a car to my tastes. And I use the word taste very questionably for, for that <laughs> year of my life. But the first vehicle I can remember working on myself um, was one of my pickups. I had a string of five or six F-150s from the mid-80s, so like 84 to 86, the, the bull Bull, bull front end, I believe they were called. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all had the same general mechanical package. It was the 300 straight six from Ford, which you can't kill with a three-speed or, or four-speed uh, overdrive. And um, I, I remember I spent two months one summer paint prepping one of those trucks with my godfather, actually, who, who ended up painting it for me. But I did all the sanding, body filling, and all that. I, and I learned those skills. And uh, I, I remember... Um, being coming home at the end of the day, even though we wore a mask, just having my n- nasal cavities and my throat filled with red dust from the oh. paint that we had been 
Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's just not much you can do. But I mean, I, I'm really glad I learned how to do that. And he also showed me a lot of other small things to work on the car over the years. But um, as time went on, I, I tried to pick up skills where I could. And I'm nowhere near the level of some of my friends who, you know, build these crazy monster turbo cars and uh, are just extremely good at, at diagnosing and understanding they have a certain mechanical sympathy, but um, this, these days I still work on my cars when I can. I prefer to pay other people to work on stuff I don't want to touch. Uh, like I, I used to change all my own oil. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go under a car and do that anymore. It, it, there's just no point. It's it's inexpensive enough to get done, and I don't have to get super dirty. But I own a number of very old cars right now, and when that happens, if you don't do the work yourself, you can quickly be bankrupted. Right. So you need you need to. If, if not do the work, understand how to diagnose problems, because if you take an older car to a general mechanic or someone who's maybe not a specialist for an older, that particular brand, trying to find the problem is going to cost you a lot of money. So if you can show up with the problem and th that's going to save so much time and effort down the road. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we'll get to the cars that you have today as part of your stable. But from my understanding... Um, you know, these aren't vehicles that you can just plug in a, you know, like there's, there isn't an OBD2 port that you can plug in and run some of your own diagnostics. No. This is oh. a far more investigative process for you. Yeah. Well, only one of my cars has an OBD2 port right now, okay. but, uh, it's definitely, I mean, part of that is also, you know, not having all that electronics makes some things simpler, mm -hmm. but you have to have a general understanding of how an engine works or how a suspension system works. Yeah. Um, and, and I've been lucky in the sense that I've, I've had mentors who've been able to show me that, but also I've spent a lot of time on the racetrack in the last decade or so and stuff breaks and you, you start to get a very good feel for the car, how it should feel when things are going well. And then when something changes, you, you understand why it changes and that helps you improve as a driver, but it also helps you keep the car on the road because you become more attuned to the mechanical aspects of the vehicle. Yeah, no, I completely understand what you mean in that having experienced it with a few slightly older model vehicles. I mean, we're still talking like early 90s were some of the ones that I had built and put onto a track on a few occasions. Um, yeah, you develop that, that relationship with it that it's kind of the seat of the pants diagnostics method. And, you, you know, you have a, you have a feel for it. Um, I do want to ask. So staying kind of back at the beginning or close to the beginning, this is one of my favorite questions because it really varies depending geographically where my guests are from. But what was the cool car that everyone had to have when you were in high school? That's kind of a weird question for me because I didn't go to I, – I, I got thrown out of my first high school and uh, I ended up at a smaller private high school because it was the only English school in my area and no one really drove. Uh -huh. uh, I think maybe maybe four or five people at the school had cars. Most of the most of the kids lived there, mm -hmm. so there wasn't really that kind of like um, West Texas dazed and confused parking lot feel going on. Right, and uh, I, I guess I kind of miss out missed out on that. But uh, yeah, there there wasn't. I I was really disconnected from modern cars when I was younger. I didn't care about them at all. Um, I was a teenager in the nineties, mm -hmm. and as a result. Uh, I, I even though that was a great era for vehicles, looking back now, I was only really interested in stuff from the 60s and 70s. And I I didn't the, all the posters of cars on my wall were stuff like, you know, Mopars, Chargers, Challengers, that kind of thing. Yeah. Some Mustangs. Um, I, I did not care about any modern car of that era. 
Hey, that's a very fair. That's a very fair answer. I mean, I think it is. It's just as much judged by the posters on your wall as it is the the cars that were in a parking lot at, at, in your high school, or not. Uh, I think the one the one modern car that was on my radar was the uh, second gen Viper. So cool. um, yes. I remember watching well, watching the TV show Viper when I was a kid. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when the second gen came out, when they had the GTS Coupe, that was I had a poster of that, or at least one of those little um, lithograph plaques. And that was probably the only modern car that's ever that ever adorned my teenage wall. Yeah, that car really um, held a very special place in my heart too, as I was a kid. Um, I love that thing. Um, okay, so now moving to today, though. What's your daily driver or stable of dailies? Well, I don't really have a daily driver because uh, one of the interesting things about my job is you're constantly driving someone else's car. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be great because in the winter, you know, you don't have to expose your own cars to to rust and, and salt and all that terrible stuff. You can lock them away. Mm-hmm. I usually I usually have something around that I can drive if I need to in the winter, but it's just usually just a beater. But um, it, it's also not so great because in the summer – you don't get to drive your own cars and uh, having cars that you love yet you cars that you simultaneously never put any mileage on kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting problem to have. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a first world problem and not a real problem whatsoever, but mm-hmm. as an enthusiast, it's something that I think about. Okay. So what are, what are the vehicles that you own currently then? It, because we will get to the last question, which is what are you driving today? Given the fact you're a journalist and, um, and knowing that you do have kind of a, a rotating platter of vehicles that you're, that you're talking about reviewing and, and kind of critiquing. Sure. Well, uh, the car I've owned the longest, uh, I guess it's been all, it's over 10 years now is I have a 2004 Cadillac CTSV, mm-hmm. and um, I actually bought that when I first started freelance writing. Is it a, is it and is it a wagon? Is it the wagon? No, it's a first gen. It's the first year f- uh, of the car. They oh, were only okay. Sedans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a it's a no sunroof car. Oh, uh, cool. So that's the only op- that's the only option you could have that year. So it's an uh, it's it's a zero option Raven Black CTSV, and I love it. It's it's uh, I'll I'll probably be buried in that car. Um, <laughs> cool, I love I that car too. On, it's actually problematic right now because for the first time in my life, I went to start it. Uh, I didn't drive it very much this summer, uh, maybe two, 3,000 kilometers. And I went to start it uh, two days ago so I could wash it before I put it away for the winter. And it wouldn't start. And I, I have power to the starter and the headlights and nothing else, uh, not even door locks. So I have no idea what's going on. I need to do some diagnosis. And I never had that issue. It's been by far the most reliable car I've ever owned. And it was beat up on a racetrack for maybe three or four years when I was between dedicated track cars. So I've been very impressed with the build quality on that vehicle. Oh, cool. Um, Wait a minute. So were you the one beating up on it on the racetrack? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I spent – I used to have a, a Miata. My first track car was a Miata, an, an, an NA, a 94 uh-huh. car package. Yeah. And I lost that oh, car. Cool. I lost it in a flood. No way. Uh, in in yeah, Montreal? My garage, in Montreal. My garage filled with uh, two meters of water. Wow. And, yeah. So when that car was gone – um, I, I had the Cadillac that had been my, that was my daily at the time. And I'm like, well, you know, time to put it on a racetrack. It's kind of what it was built for. So yeah, totally. I, it's such I an for, underlooked car. <laughs> yeah, well, there's not car. very many of them. So yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty rare. Um, they only sold 200 a year in Canada and this one came from Florida. Uh, it's a U.S. car, but, uh, I, I have that. And mm-hmm. then, uh, second longest is my 78 280Z, which is the last year of the S30 generation, um, Datsun, which is the first of the Z cars that were, were ever built. Uh, and that's, that's my dedicated track car. Um, 
there's very little on the car that's stock at this point. I would say the engine mm-hmm. is probably the only thing left. Absolutely everything else, suspension, transmission, even the drive shaft is aluminum at this point, has, has been changed. And uh, that's another car that gets beaten to death on a regular <laughs> basis. Uh, and it's been phenomenally reliable, although I'm starting to get to the edges of what the platform will, will tolerate, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So that's been an interesting experience. Uh, I actually did an article for it on Haggerty. I was just going to say, such an interesting yeah. piece on owning that vehicle and what it really, like what the real costs are of owning and maintaining and having that on a racetrack, right? Is that fairly accurate? Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, I didn't include things like uh, tires, which uh, I I buy at the beginning of the season, so that adds about a thousand dollars to to the season. But mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting because I, I I wrote that before my final event of the year, and then two weeks ago I was at New Hampshire Motor Speedway on the road course, and the car wouldn't go above fifty six hundred RPM. It would sputter, and I never had that happen before. And I, I think it's a fuel delivery issue. I was able mm. to drive around it. It's not a big deal, but it is something new. Hmm. And I'm like, well, yeah, I just wrote this article, you know, year to year. <laughs> and here's this one thing that that's cropped up. I thought I'd be able to make it to storage without having to deal with anything else. But there you go. But I love the car. It's a lot of fun. Um, driving an old car on a track is uh, really, really different from what I do every day for work. So that's a big part of why I do it. And uh, I just, you know, I, I like driving things that other people don't. And um, I, I don't want to really be part of the crowd or the pack. Uh, the Miata was a lot of fun on a racetrack. And there's there's tons of Miatas out there. And I really enjoy it. And I miss it actually every day. But uh, there's something to be said for just having something unique until something breaks and then no one has a spare. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. And and as you'd said, that piece um, can be found in Haggerty Classic Car. Yeah, uh, Haggerty.com. They have a, an article section and uh, you can find it. I think it was published uh, two, three weeks ago. So it should be pretty easy to find um and my last car that i that i have right now is an 87 jeep grand wagoneer and i bought that last spring uh i don't need it and i've been obsessing about it for like two years straight and the car the car i ended up buying i'd actually looked at a full year before i bought it and walked away and i ended up buying a 2004 wrx wagon in between oh no way and yeah, well, it was more practical. Yeah, and then that that car was kind of a basket case, and I sold it, and I regretted not getting the Jeep. And it, like a year later, almost on the dot, I I texted the guy, and I'm like, "Do you still have it?" And he's like, "Yeah, but I'm moving, and I need to sell it." So I ended up picking it up from him, and uh, it's been great. I love it. It's 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 so primitive in so many ways, <laughs> but uh, it's very comfortable to drive, and it gets great reactions from people out on the road. It makes people smile. Um, nothing really looks like that vehicle anymore. Yeah. And uh, it's a unique size as well. And I've decided, you know, I, I like it so much. I'm going to LS swap it this winter. Oh, uh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. It's going to be my tow vehicle for the Datsun and mm. kind of a it'll take over daily driving duty um, from everything else. And I have the engine already and I just ordered a new cam and a, 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 a displacement on demand delete package for it and all sorts of fun stuff that you get to do when you, when you do an LS swap. So I'm writing a series of articles on that too, for a couple of clients to kind of keep track of the madness. Oh, cool. I, and, and if I'm not mistaken, there was, uh, there was one very recently that you had released, I think again with Haggerty, uh, detailing, um, that model in particular. Oh yeah, I did a buying guide on the cars. Uh, I do I do a series of buying guides for for Haggerty, kind of like an in depth thing. We mm-hmm. pick a, a certain generation of car, and it's like here's absolutely everything you need to know. And I, I try to talk to experts who either sell these cars or restore them. 
And yeah, I did one on the Jeep. Um, most of it was, <laughs> you know, most of it's like, just don't buy it. Like <laughs> there's so much, <laughs> it's funny because the, the source I talked to, uh, GK Kerr, he's a, he owns a, a, a Jeep, um, a place called uh, classic gentleman in New York and they refurbish uh, or they refurbish Jeeps, but they also look for very low mileage Jeeps and sell those. And um, one of his quotes was saying, he's like, look, you have to be honest about the build quality of these vehicles. When they were new, it wasn't great. So there's <laughs> things you're going to there's things you're going to have to deal with that you always would have had to deal with. And now they're all 35 years old, you know, so, yeah, it oh. compounds the problem. It's uh, it's so interesting. And as I kind of kicked off the description of what you're doing and where it's happening, uh, I wasn't lying by saying extremely detailed or some of the most detailed because they really are. These buying guides that you've been doing are excellent. Um, you know, some of the most maybe exhaustive might be an exaggeration, but they certainly are in depth and um, and they're very worth the read. So if you're listening, go search those out because I, you know, you won't um, you won't regret the time you spend reading through them. Even if you're not into the vehicle, I just I love the way that you write about them. You're honest. And it's not like you're trying to sell these vehicles, which I know even as a new car, um, like as a journalist writing about new cars, you, you're also not trying to sell these, but you're just being honest and giving your opinion on them. I mean, I think with that in mind, um, what is it from a new car perspective that you're driving right now? Or what's the most recent new car that you've driven? I have a, I'm currently driving a 2019 BMW M4 Cabriolet. Oh wow, nice. Ah, good timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just you know, it's actually reasonably warm right now. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I can I've had I mean I don't drive convertibles with the top up, so <laughs> it's I like it when it's warmer. But uh yeah, it's it's uh it's an interesting it's, it's the last year for this car. I mean BMW's getting rid of the the they the the new generation three series is out, so we're gonna see a new M three soon. Um and that means we'll see a new M four eventually. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, they're gonna move away from the retractable hardtop design that's kind of defined this particular generation. So it's uh it's a kind of a last dance with this with this car. Cool. I mean, and I, I'm sure we will read about it. Are you able to say who you're writing this piece for? Yeah, this piece will be in Auto Trader. Cool. Awesome. Um, now, uh, lastly, in this kind of segment or, or this line of questions, what's the favorite? What's your favorite vehicle that you've driven in the last year? In the last year, mm -hmm. is that a super loaded like, question for you? Like, like, no, I just, I just, it's hard to remember mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what I've driven. I guess maybe one, and, one that just stood out the most for you. Uh, and a modern vehicle, you mean? Yes. Okay. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's a tough question because I'm going to be honest. Uh, modern cars are a very homogenous experience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I totally agree. I think that in a given year, there's maybe three or four cars I would want to own mm -hmm. just personally. Uh, and, and when I say that, I don't mean that there are only three to four good cars. I there are, Most of the cars I drive are good. Mm -hmm. There's It's really hard to find a bad car these days, which is great for the consumer. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's just so much sameness. So much of what I drive, especially in the crossover and SUV segment, it's these are vehicles that are built to a um, a, a market slice, not a design specification. Mm, that's they, a good they, yeah. They, that's a good way to put it. It's 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 like okay, we have X customer in mind. This is what X customer wants. Make a box that wraps around that, and then we're gonna <laughs> slice. We'll slice that box three different ways, yeah. and we'll sell it at three different uh, three different size points and price points. And I get that. But it, it, it does create a kind of a sameness for an entire class of vehicles. Um, that being said, uh, oh, man, 
I'm trying to think of of I I, I drove <laughs> I drove a pretty ridiculous car recently the uh, Challenger Hellcat Challenger Hellcat Red Eye which is the 797 horsepower version of that car. Oh wow! Okay. And, and wait, sorry. Yeah, how, does, and, how does that differ from the Demon? So the Demon isn't in production anymore. Um, that was, I believe, a one oh. one year only vehicle, okay. and that had eight hundred and forty horsepower. So it it has a lot of the Demon's drivetrain mm. in it, mm-hmm. uh, but you're missing a lot of the drag specific stuff. Like there's no trans brake. There's uh. no. Um, they don't use the air conditioner to cool the charge. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. There's, there's yeah. There's no drip collector for the air because you can't run an air conditioner on a drag strip. And the Demon was a drag car, so they had a collector to keep condensation from hitting the pavement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't get the skinny tires. It's 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 basically a much more powerful Hellcat Demon hybrid kind of thing. Cool. And it was painted plum crazy purple, so you can't ignore it. Oh, uh, it gets I a saw. Lot of I, I saw that. I saw that on your Instagram feed. Um, yeah. Yeah. That color is crazy. It's. I mean, it's super cool. I love that the uniqueness of those colors. Yeah, it's it's nice that FCA is doing that because not you know so many cars. It's not really a complaint, but there's a lot of resale silver, black, and white. And I yeah. own a black car and a white car, so I can't really throw stones. <laughs> but I, you know, it it's visually they're not as interesting as candy colored cars, and uh, it's it's nice to see that kind of stuff. I will say though, aside from the Challenger, there is one car now that I'm thinking about it that really did stand out this year, mm-hmm. and that's the Hyundai Veloster N, oh. which I think is a I think it's a fantastic car. Uh, I liked it a lot more than any other car in its segment, any other hot hatch. I think this is the one to have just in terms of fun factor and it's, it's rambunctious and makes all the right noises and it looks great. Uh, and it's relatively affordable. So, uh, in a world where we have, we've been blessed with cars like the golf R and the civic type R and, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. focus, the focus RS, I think that, uh, the Veloster N is for them to hit it out of the park like that on their first try, I was blown away. Yeah, I've heard a lot of really, really good feedback about that car. And I've yet to see one in person. I've seen lots of photos. And it, it sounds like everyone gives it a really positive review from a company that, uh, you know, has fallen under a lot of criticism and skepticism in the past, which is, I think, now completely kind of been squashed in many of the categories that they compete in. Well, I think what you're seeing now, uh, Hyundai today is very similar to what Honda was in the 90s, where it's yeah. a company that's being increasingly run by its engineering comp- its engineering staff in the sense that they're given free reign to do things, to take risks, to try something outrageous, and then they're being backed up by styling that's top-notch and exceptional reliability. And and those th- those three things, very especially engineering, really defined Honda for a long time. And then I think that company lost its way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it kind of just slid back into producing very profitable, but not all that interesting automobiles. And Hyundai has taken up that slack. And now you can you can go into a Hyundai dealership and there's stuff that's interesting to look at and interesting to drive. And 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. So uh, and they're extremely vertically integrated as a company, too. So it's just nice to see them flexing their muscle and kind of feeling their oats and being like, you know, what, we're building this car because it because we can, not necessarily because anyone wants it. Like like a great example is the. Uh, Kia K900, Kia is Hyundai's sister company, right? Mm-hmm. And no one no one buys that car. I mean, it's it's very very low volume and it's extremely expensive to produce. And yet they're building it just to show off. And I like that kind of attitude from a company. Yeah, I, I had no clue that they that that was still continuing production. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I so okay. Well, we're moving into this world that you're talking about some of the new cars um, and you know outside of Haggerty, I, I think some of the publications that you've been working with. 
um, you know, you're certainly the, focusing on some of the newer stuff that's out there, but maybe just remind everyone where they can find some of your work. Um, so you can just kind of explain a bit about some of those recent publications. So if they were to want to go find them, they can go find them. Sure. Uh, on newsstands, I mean, you can find me in Super Street, which is a uh, sport compact performance magazine that's been around since the dawn of time. It uh, has. Since the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I, since the, the beginning of that of that craze. And it's still still uh, keeping the fires burning. Uh, editor Sam Dew, and uh, it's great working with him. Um, also, uh, I'm working with Automobile Magazine and Motor Trend. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where a lot of the new car stuff ends up. You can find my more classic car, performance car stuff on Driving Line, which is a magazine and website owned by Nito Tires. Okay. Uh, and Haggerty Classic Cars, you mentioned. And in Canada, you can find me at driving.ca and Auto Trader. And uh, Auto Trader's new car reviews, mostly for me. And driving.ca is uh, features kind of more historical stuff. Awesome. Awesome. And again, I, I've been encouraging everyone to check out your work and I will continue to do that throughout this, but, um, I appreciate go, that. Go and, uh, go and find it. Um, you won't be disappointed in what, what Benjamin is up to now when it comes to being an automotive journalist, um, and in that capacity, because I know you do writing, uh, you know, you're not, you're not, you are not solely an automotive journalist. It is one of the many things that you do, but in that world and in that context, if someone didn't really know um, what it took to be uh, an automotive journalist. And we wanted to give them a kind of, I mean, I know it's not necessarily a day in the life of, but could you explain the sequence of events when you're, when you agree to write to a writing assignment for one of these publications, where it starts um, and where it ends? Well, I think as with most freelance writing, it begins with a pitch. So I approach an outlet with an idea, something I want to write about, whether that's a car that I'm driving or just something that interests me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I send it to an outlet that I think it's a good fit for because you have to know the audience that you're writing for. And not all story ideas are going to be appropriate for every outlet. And then there's some back and forth from the editors um, where they provide their input on maybe they want to fine tune the idea. And then you just kind of go for it. Uh, you get the green light and you do the writing and um, submit it. Um, there's a lot of romanticism that surrounds writing. But in my experience, it's it's a small business like any other. And I think that what keeps the, the most important aspects of being a freelance writer are being is being reliable and actually providing the work that you said you're going to provide at the time you said you were going to provide it. That's seems like an easy thing, but I think it trips up a lot of people who are first getting started, whether they get overloaded with work or whether they feel overwhelmed by the work that they're doing. Um, and that reliability will take you extremely far in this business. You don't even have to be a great writer, to be honest, it, as long as you're reliable and do what you say you're going to do. Uh, that's always been my advice for anyone who's ever been curious about writing for a living. And I strongly encourage anyone who wants to write for a living to do it because it's been incredibly rewarding for me. And I remember growing up, uh, I was never encouraged to uh, – my writing was encouraged, but I was never encouraged to pursue it as a profession. And I bought into the idea that, oh, you can't make any money writing and you're going to die in a pauper's grave and all that stuff. And <laughs> none of that's true. And in, in fact, the exact opposite is true. And uh, I it really upsets me that people to this day still are told that the, the, the arts in general, but writing specifically is just lumped under this thing. It's, oh, you should pursue it as a passion rather than pursue it as a career. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that's a great piece of advice. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, when it comes to 
the the art of writing do you remember what the first piece of published work was uh of yours <sighs> define published hmm um let's say you were paid for a piece of your written work uh paid okay um the first thing i was paid for was when i was i don't remember how old probably 14 or 15 I uh, entered a contest in my local newspaper, and it was, I think the reward, the in addition to publication, was $100, and it was a piece about a UFO sighting in my in my region. <laughs> no way. That's hilarious. Yeah. So wow. That's probably the first thing I was paid for. Oh, very cool. Um, and then what was, the, what was the first piece that you wrote that um, you either saw or picked up on a newsstand and, and felt like, oh, my God, I did it? I made it. That was that was on your bucket list of of places or publications that you always wanted to be a part of. That's kind of a harder question to answer because I did not really read a lot of uh, car magazines when I was growing up. Mm. Because as I as I said earlier, I wasn't into new cars. Oh yeah, like, fair. Just, okay, yeah. I just wasn't. I, I read stuff. Hemmings had a lot of cool publications like uh, mm -hmm. Special Interest Auto that I would read. I would read stuff like Mopar Action and uh, magazines like that. I. I it, for me, it, it's it's the idea of like a prestige publication is kind of tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that success for writers should be defined by being able to support yourself doing something that you want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, that's fair, yeah. I think that that kind of writing can look very different from something that you find at a newsstand. Um, it's uh, I I've always been really a proponent too of working with people that you want to work with. And, um, when you find a good team, I remember, uh, some of the, the great teams that I worked with would be at a website called auto by tell, uh, Michelle Naranjo is an editor who was extremely important to my career when I was first starting out, giving me lots of opportunities, helping me develop as a writer, but also working with Alana share at roadkill was an extremely eye opening experience. Um, being involved with the magazine and the website, and the way she was able to improve my writing uh, in a way that um, no one had really thought to take the time to do before was something I really appreciated. And a lot of the lessons I learned there, I, I still use to this day uh, in, in my writing. And also um, working with Christian Wardlaw at the New York Daily News uh, for several years was something that also helped improve my writing because like Alana, he took an interest in not just rushing content out and making sure it was live, but actually making sure that that content was as good as it could be. So that that to me is uh, a rarity in this business. Uh, and if you can find an editor who's willing to work to improve what you're doing, I, I, that's that's gold if you can get that kind of feedback. And I, it's something that I crave. And I really appreciate being able to work with people who provide me with that. Oh, I love this. It's I mean, it's for, it's so good for anyone out there that's listening that is a budding automotive journalist or they're considering it as a career or, you know, the encouragement you've given that this doesn't just need to be a passion or considered a hobby, that this can be a real career and a really fulfilling career that you can support and sustain yourself on. So, yeah, thank, thank and, you for that. I find I find it insulting when when people reduce it to the idea that it can be a hobby because yeah. that leads to a situation where people are exploited. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. let's be let's be honest, the job that I do, many people would do for free. And when you're in a situation like that where your livelihood depends on a profession that fights against this wave of people who just they're like, oh, I want to drive this car. 
I want to have this experience. I'll do it for free. Don't worry. You don't have to pay me. That's a, that's a unique kind of economic pressure that not all careers have. Mm-hmm. But um, no one works well for free. And anyone who's working for free is generally being exploited. And that's not something that I think anyone should encourage. I think everyone's work has value. And I think knowing what what the value is of your particular work is going to help you build a career. And even when you're starting out, so many people have approached me and said, should I do this for free to get my my name out there to get my foot in the door? And I'm like, no, because there are people who will let you get your foot in the door and pay you at the same time. So that's another lesson I think that I didn't know about when I first started out. And fortunately, I, I never worked for free. I didn't have to deal with that, but I know people who have struggled with that. And then when you try to transition from something that you've approached as a hobby where you're not putting an economic value on your work to something that's going to put food on the table, that becomes difficult. So, yeah, that I, I couldn't agree. I could not agree more with you on that. And I think with the proliferation of methods for distribution and new types of content creation, there are a lot of people that are out there kind of raising their hand saying, I just want the experience of doing it. And they're all willing mm-hmm. to put that on the line without actually seeking any compensation for it. And and when that happens, I mean, I see it very uniquely as well, even in my in my my wife's profession and in her field as an illustrator, there are a lot of people that can casually say, well, I mean, I could I could draw that or I could do that. But yeah, yet- or I can push the, I can push the 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 button on a camera and take a picture. You know, it's like, yeah, it's it's the reduction of the task at hand to the mechanicals of it rather than the craft of it or the skill of it. And that's not necessarily a positive way forward. I mean, I, I, in another life, I was in the music industry and I think that's probably the only area where that happens even more (laughs) than what I do now where people just want to be involved. So they're like, I'll get, I'll get on stage for free. I'll, I'll uh, sell your t-shirts for free. I'll, I'll, you know, promote your party for free, whatever it is. Um, It's not a great way to move forward. No, it's not. It is really the exploitation of and race to the bottom that is just not a healthy. It's it's not a it's no. not at the core of a healthy industry. And and no, so if someone's ma- someone's making money, right, mm-hmm. at some point, if yeah. you're doing that content for free, and then you have to ask yourself, why aren't you why aren't you part of that financial aspect of it? Why why does someone get to make money if not you? Why isn't it shared income? All that sort of stuff. I mean, it and and look at it as a business rather than a passion. Yeah. And well, and oftentimes the people making that money are the ones who are very well aware of the fact that they are taking advantage of someone who may be naive and and thinking that that's their, you know, the quote unquote foot in the door that's going to help them with their this opportunity. Um, so stay away from that. Anyone who's listening, don't do it. Don't yeah. do it for free. Your work has value. Your time has value. And you'll find people who share that that opinion you know mm-hmm. don't don't despair they are out there they're, they're, the world is filled with legitimate publishers <laughs> right right well and i'm happy to hear that there were some very formative figures in your career um at the beginning or in the middle or in the end i'm not sure at what point in the career or if they all continue to be part of that circle for you well, but it, it should never stop right if you're lucky enough you, you get to interact with people who help you learn and improve your entire career so mm-hmm. I, i'm always looking for it and i'm fortunate that i've been able to find it find it a few times yeah well I mean, it's a good segue into the this whole idea of um, gratification in and fulfillment in a career. As uh, from the from an automotive journalism standpoint, what have you found to be the most gratifying part of this part of your career? Um, honestly, not having a job. Uh, I haven't had a job in fifteen or sixteen years. 
and uh, the the working as an employee is not for me. And once you realize that, it either really limits your options or makes makes it clear that you have no limits on your options. And I was lucky to grow up in a family where entrepreneurialism was encouraged. And I got to see some very strong examples of that when I was younger. And uh, the the fact that I can set my own hours, that I can travel the world if I want to or stay at home if I want to, and that I get to work with people on a topic that I find personally interesting and work with good people, I think that's the best part of my career as an automotive journalist. Uh, it's It's been really rewarding, but... It, it, you know, it's it's a freedom and you can turn anything into a grind if you want to and you can create a trap for yourself in any kind of career if you want to. But uh, it's it's a lot better for me from my perspective than getting up and going to an office in the morning, which is something I don't think I could do. I mean, I think I'm essentially unemployable at this point. Is what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> um, oh, this is awesome, man. No, honestly, this is very... Um, it's very inspiring stuff. And, and what you're saying is, is, is obviously coming from the heart and, and you've lived it and you've practiced it. And this is, you know, this is genuinely the truth. Everyone who's listening, Ben is not bullshitting us on this. Now, with that in mind, there are also some very clear challenges that must have, um, have must have arisen or arisen to the top when you were uh, on this whole journey and and being as honest or transparent about that too, what would you say were some of the most challenging parts of this as a career? Well, I think if you don't handle rejection well, that could be an issue. Mm. Um, it, it, it's also, you, you're going to have a lot of ideas that you want to write about and not everyone's going to agree that they're as interesting as you think they are. So, <laughs> right, right. I, I, and, and there's a, you know, there's a period of time too where you're kind of trying to figure out well, what interests me and where can I find the people who are who feel the same way and where can I find those audiences? And until you kind of find those audiences, you might not have the right home for the work you want to do. Um, another thing that's challenging, I think, is, like I said, trying to find people who will give you good feedback. And by good feedback, I don't mean a pat on the back. I mean someone who's willing to tear down something that you wrote in a constructive way mm-hmm. and show you how it can be better. And uh, that that's also been a challenge. But I think when I first started out, um, the fear that one day I would wake up and all my clients would be gone was probably the biggest challenge I dealt with. And that would lead me to work too hard and just constantly be piling on more and more work, newer and newer clients because of the idea that if I didn't do this, maybe I wouldn't have anything to do tomorrow and I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. And that's something I think that a lot of entrepreneurs fight against in any type of small business. Mm-hmm. And it can create a, a bad cycle where you bury yourself with work and you end up creating a problem um, that, that can lead to burnout. Right. And do you feel like, I mean, this may be an obvious answer, but what happens when you um, when you kind of get to that panic stage where you feel like you have to do all of this or those jobs are going to evaporate or that relationship is going to just simply go away and, and dry up? you're taking on the wrong type of work. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I think it's not necessarily the wrong type of work, but I think it's too much work because okay. uh, you can you can ruin a relationship just as easily by, by turning in something that's subpar mm-hmm. as you can by saying no. Right. So it, it, it's the weird thing about being a writer or any kind of creative task or task where your name is attached to your work directly is everything you do has to be the best thing you've ever done because the chance that someone's going to read it 
and decide, oh, I don't want to hire this person because this was terrible, or oh, I would like to find out more about hiring this person could hinge on that one piece of work. Mm-hmm. It's it's really hard to, there's no real throwaway work when your name's attached to everything you do. So that adds pressure to it as well. You want to be doing your best work all the time and your clients deserve your best work all the time. And I'm not saying you have to do some 5,000 word tome with like all sorts of annotations and, and incredible insights into your topic, but you do have to meet the expectations of your client each and every time you write something. And if you have so much work that you're scatterbrained, you're pulled in a million directions, you're not going to be able to do that. And that's going to that's going to hurt your business. And and it's it fear is irrational. I mean, there's no way that a human being is going to wake up and everyone that they've had a business relationship that day is going to decide it's over. Like that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen. That's a but, very good point. Fear, fear makes us give those ideas some type of weight. Mm-hmm. And once you take that weight away and it took me years before many years before I was able to feel comfortable, before I wasn't looking for work two to three hours a day, you know, uh, sending pitches, scouting out new clients, that kind of thing, until I felt comfortable. And no one told me that. Yeah. (laughs) No no one told me it would be like that. Well, that's very encouraging. I mean, for anyone pursuing any type of entrepreneurial venture, especially something that you're passionate at and you're reasonably good at, I think that's fantastic advice to be able to... um, to listen to. I mean, it's not like you can just let go someday, but I think that there is some reassurance that, um, that you can preserve those relationships. And, and those are relationships that, like you said, don't just evaporate one day without reason. No. And, and the cool thing about our industry, about the automotive industry is it's relatively small. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, when you meet somebody five years later, three years later, two years later, they could be in a different position. Um, they could be uh, a colleague, they could be an editor, they could be on the other side of the fence doing PR. And the the, the, the point is, you're going to be interacting with this person for a long time. And if you establish a professional and respectful relationship with that person from the start, then they could be involved in your career in a number of different ways over the long term. And I think that develop, like any business is developing relationships and maintaining those relationships. And a big part of that is, you know, being professional and being reliable, but also just being a good human being. And um, I think that's something that would be helpful for anyone who's trying to start out as a writer as well, to remember that everyone around you is someone who has insight, someone who could help you out, or someone who you might be able to turn to for advice or someone who you might be able to use as a model for parts of your own career later on or in that moment. And it's, it's worth getting to know these people and it's worth keeping them in your life and um, just knowing that they could be a resource for you or that they, that you could be a resource for them because a few years down the road, you might have an opportunity that's not right for you, but is a perfect fit for someone that you know. And being able to help someone out like that feels great. And it's it's a big part of how the the industry moves forward. I mean, um, a lot of work is assigned because people know each other and they know their strengths and their weaknesses and they know what they like doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we when we talk about it in this um, in this context, I know that there is a component of it that uh, relies on you'd said somebody who might just end up in well, not just somebody who might end up in PR at a manufacturer's side. A lot of the times, they are the ones who kind of hold the keys to um, vehicles, to press tours, to vehicle launches, um, all kind of in that stream of. Um, 
of connected or, not, or sorry, I guess connectivity uh, that you've maintained relationships on. Now, when when we talk about it, like the press tour or the idea of a press tour or a vehicle launch that someone in that capacity controls, what would you say is like if somebody didn't know what that whole shtick was or how that all worked, um, how would you describe it to someone um, that part of the the the, the, um, the that side of your career as a journalist? Uh, well, I mean, it's easier for a manufacturer to bring a bunch of journalists to one place than to send a bunch of cars to a bunch of different places. <laughs> yeah, right. So when a new car comes out, they often have an event uh, that is focused around that one particular vehicle. And then you travel to that event, drive the car and write your story or, you know, record your podcast, do your video, that kind of thing. Yeah. When we talk about the driving side of this, I mean, you'd you'd mentioned earlier that you that you have a dedi- dedicated track car. That 280Z is a dedicated track car. So you have really focused a lot of time, and, and I imagine it comes from both the enjoyment and the development of skill and ability in driving itself. Have you done any professional driving education? And if you have, what would you recommend for anyone out there listening that wanted to, if you wanted to sharpen your skills as a driver? Uh, I've done many, many, many schools, uh, to be honest. I got into track driving before I was involved in the auto industry. And uh, I did a bunch of autocross schools. And then when I kind of tried my first track day rather than autocross, I realized that uh, I was far more into the idea of 80 minutes of track time a day rather than eight one-minute runs on an autocross course. (laughs) Yes, I hear that. very quickly, yeah, I very quickly moved away from autocross. my i've also been very very fortunate in this career to attend schools and meet race drivers and right seat or left seat with race drivers um at events giving being given access that I would never have uh if i wasn't a journalist and anytime you get a chance to have someone else's insight on your driving that's something you should take especially if they're an indie car driver or mm-hmm. a world touring car driver uh, someone who's just at a huge level differential between you and, mm-hmm. and themselves. Um, my number one recommendation for anyone who wants to get involved in performance driving is seat time. Uh, s- being behind the wheel on a racetrack or on an autocross course or on a drag strip is the single most useful thing you will do in terms of improving as a driver. And the next most useful thing is to have someone sitting there beside you who is a better driver than you are and then listening to what they have to say. Mm. Because when I showed up at my first driving school, I was a terrible driver. (laughs) I did not know what I was doing. I had all sorts of terrible habits I learned from years of just driving on the street and thinking I was great. Mm -hmm. And having someone who can constructively deconstruct you and rebuild you into someone who's actually a semi-decent driver is invaluable. Uh, it's, it's, It's incredible feedback. And uh, I think if you're interested in it, um, you should definitely go do it. It's, there's a lot of inexpensive ways to get involved. Autocross costs almost no money. And uh, drag racing is also very inexpensive if you, if you stay in the stock classes. Um, road course racing, which is what I do the most of, can be pricey. But if you choose an inexpensive car and you go to mostly local events, you can keep costs down. Uh, I do it with my father and my sister. Um, she started maybe four or five years ago. My father started about six years ago. And um, she drives a Miata, a stock Miata, and has a blast. And sometimes I take her car out on the track, and I have a blast in it too. Yeah, right. So uh, it's it's there's just there it's a great platform. Yeah, Miata. Uh, I mean, it, 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 I think the it is very commonly coined as Miata is always the answer. Um, and 
I, I think that 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 rings pretty true. I, I've done a, a, quite a bit of um, of autocross uh, driving slash, I guess, racing. Um, but I find it super gratifying. And then getting out onto the big track, um, I'm surprised to be honest. I'm I'm sure you are too at how little skill or education you can have and yet still be uh, allowed out on some of the big tracks with other cars on an open track. And I mean, the first time I was out on a track, I, I think I was kind of terrified uh, because I guess for that reason, I mean, you're, you're on a racetrack and you have to maintain a reasonable pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, it's terrifying. And, but if you, but if you have a, if you have an instructor beside you, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, once mm-hmm. you, that first session is going to be tough. And once you get through that and you start to find your comfort level, you realize that you're in in the session that you're out there with, uh, it's going to be with other students. You know, you're going to be driving with other people who are at a similar level of ability to you. And each of those people also has an instructor with them if you're at any kind of reputable driving school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, the intimidation factor is real, but the comfort starts to come fairly quickly. So uh, get past it and you're going to be fine. I like it. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so what's up for uh, 2020? I mean, plans, travel, reviews, vehicles you're looking forward to seeing and driving. Um, I, what is it that's exciting you looking forward into uh, 2020? Uh, I don't really have any specific plans for the year. I have some uh, working on some projects with some new clients uh, that that hopefully will uh, bear fruit in, in the new year, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, working on a, actually, we were discussing before the show, but working on a graphic novel project, which should be published next year. And I'm excited about that. But uh, I think I'm mostly just trying to continue to find balance uh, between the work that I enjoy and the work that I need to do to survive and uh, continue to, um, I guess, more of my focus is these days, I'm more and more drawn towards older cars. Um, and the people that are involved in them and the experiences surrounding them. And that's something I hope to kind of push forward with uh, next year, I guess. Awesome. Well, I mean, I, I really want to thank you and very genuinely for such a thoughtful conversation. I think that anyone listening out there that has any inkling to want to get into automotive journalism or writing in journalism um, in general I think can take away a lot of value from this conversation. So I appreciate that, Benjamin. And thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. Um, now, before we go, where can everyone find you online? Um, give them all the social medias. So the you can find my portfolio at BenjaminHunting.com. Uh, that's got a list of all my current and past clients and all the writing that's out there live right now. Uh, you can also hear me at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com and searching unnamed automotive podcast on any podcatcher, uh, iTunes, Google play music, anything like that. Mm-hmm. We're out there. That's with Sammy Hadjassad, my co-host. And you can find me on Instagram at hunting Benjamin. That's where I'm easiest to find. It's a, uh, you know, people are nice and genuine and there's, there's fun pictures and no one's really mean on Instagram, which is something I appreciate. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. You're totally right. Um, that's awesome. Okay. Well, everyone, that has been yet another episode of the Bucket Seat Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne. You can find me and us, the Bucket Seat, just about anywhere online at the Bucket Seat 
And of course, find the show on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and all the places that you can find Benjamin and and Sammy's show on as well. Uh, do continue writing in. Give me your show and episode suggestions um, if you want a particular guest to be on the show or you want to introduce me to that guest. I'd be happy. I'm finding lots of interesting people through this wonderful journey on the show. Um, and once again, Benjamin, thank you so much for being on this episode. And I look forward to having everybody uh, listen in on all of our upcoming content. Thanks, everyone. Take care.